Chapter Four, Part Two of The Sorceress of the Strand by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Talk of the Town, Part Two. It is my custom to lunch at the Ship and Turtle, an hour that I always enjoy in the midst of my day's work, for I meet many old friends there, and our meal, as a rule, is a merry one. One of my most constant companions on these occasions is a man of the name Samuel Pollock the senior partner in the firm of Pollock and Harmon, patent agents, Bishopsgate Street. Pollock is one of those breezy, good-natured individuals who make a pleasant impression wherever they go. He is stout of build and somewhat rubicund of face, an excellent man of business and a firm friend. I have liked him for years, and am always glad when he occupies the same table with me at lunch. On the Friday following Vandeleur's dinner, Pollock and I met as usual. I noticed on his entrance into the lunchroom a particularly merry and pleased expression on his face. He sat down and ordered a quart of the most expensive brand of champagne. He insisted on my joining him in a bumper of the frothy wine, and after drinking his health I could not help exclaiming, "'You seem pretty jolly this morning, Pollock. A successful flutter in khakis?' "'Ha, ha, ha!' was the answer. "'Better than a flutter, my boy. Certainties nowadays are what I am thinking of, and I have just bagged one, and a fat one.' "'Capital! Tell me all about it,' I answered. "'What is the yarn, Pollock?' He gave me a somewhat vague smile, which seemed to me to mingle a sort of contempt with amusement, and said impressively, "'A roaring commission! The biggest that has been in the market for the last ten years! Patent rights for every country on earth, and a hundred shares allotted gratis when the thing is floated! I tell you, Druce,' he added, raising his voice, "'if it comes off, I retire with as near fifteen thousand a year as I want!' "'You were born under a lucky star. There's no doubt of that,' I answered, somewhat sharply for Pollock's manner had never impressed me less favorably than it did this morning. He was evidently almost beside himself with excitement. "'I congratulate you, of course,' I said, after a moment. "'Ask me to the housewarming of your castle in Scotland, whenever that event comes off. But can't you give me a hint with regard to this magnificent affair? I am, as you know, a struggling pauper, and should like to have my share of the pickings, if there are any at your disposal, to give away.' "'My lips are sealed,' he answered at once. "'I am sorry.' for there is no one I should like better to help. But I think I am justified in telling you this. The city will hum when the news is out. It is immense. It is colossal. It is paralyzing. You excite my curiosity to a remarkable extent, I could not help saying. Curiosity has a great deal to do with my trade, as you know. He finished his glass of champagne and set it down. His eyes, as he fixed them on me, were full of laughter. I almost wondered whether he was amusing himself at my expense but no, his next words were sane enough. "'There is another little matter I can inform you about, Druce, without breaking any confidence. I happen to know that the fortunate patentee is a friend of yours.' "'A friend of mine?' I exclaimed. "'An acquaintance, perhaps. I haven't three friends in the world.' "'A great friend. An admirer, too,' he went on. "'An admirer?' I repeated, staring across at him. "'A devoted admirer? Who is he? Come out with it, Pollock. Don't keep me on tenterhooks.' "'Think over your list of admirers,' he cried tantalizingly. "'I will hazard a guess, then, but he isn't an admirer.' "'Vandeleur,' I said. "'Ha! ha!' he roared. "'Better and better. She admires him, too, I believe.' "'She?' A strange thought seized me. I felt the high spirits which Pollock had infected me with depart as in a flash. I knew that in spite of every effort my face had altered in expression. Pollock gazed at me and said in a note of triumph, "'I see you guess. The cat is out of the bag,' he chuckled. "'Isn't it superb?' he added. "'Madam Sarah?' 
I ejaculated, when I could find words. He burst into a fresh roar of delight. "'There's no harm in your knowing that much,' he said. "'But what's up? You look queer.' The change in my demeanor must have astonished him. I sat almost motionless, staring into his face. "'Nothing,' I answered, speaking as quietly as I could. "'The admiration you have remarked upon is reciprocal. I am glad that she has done so well.' "'She is particularly pleased,' continued Pollock, "'on account of her young protégé, the lovely Donna Marta. The young lady in question is to make a very good match, in a certain sense a brilliant one, and Madame wants to give her a wedding portion. Ah, there are few women so kind, so great, as Madame Sarah. She has the wisdom of the ancients, and some of their secrets, too. I made no reply. The usual thing had happened, so far as my good-natured friend was concerned. He was dazzled by the beauty of his client, and had given himself away, a ready victim to her fascinations. "'I see,' he added, "'that you are also under her spells. Who wouldn't yield to the power of those eyes? The young lady, Donna Marta, is all very well, but give me Madame herself.' With these words he left me. Never was there a more prosperous or happier-looking man. Little did he guess the thoughts that were surging through my brain. Without returning to my place of business, I took a hansom and drove to Vandeleur's office. My heart was full of a nameless fear. Pollock let out a great deal more than he had any intention of doing. So Donna Marta was engaged. Engaged to whom? Surely not to the poor, infatuated young professor? Pollock had said that in some respects the proposed match was a brilliant one. That might be a fitting description of a marriage with the young professor, whose fame was attracting the attention of the greatest scientist in Europe. He was poor, certainly, but then he held a secret. That secret might mean anything. It might even revolutionize the world. Did Madame mean by this subtle trap to lure it from him? It was more than probable. It would explain Pollock's excitement and his attitude. In fact, the scheme was worthy of her colossal brain. As I entered Vandeleur's room, I was surprised to see him pacing up and down with his coat off, his brows knitted in anxious thought. He was evidently in the thick of a problem, and one of no ordinary magnitude. On the table lay a number of beakers, retorts, and test-tubes. "'Sit down,' he said roughly. "'Glad you've come. See this?' He held up a glass tube containing what appeared to be milk. "'Listen,' he said. "'You will see that my fears were justified with regard to Piozzi. Poor fellow, he is in the toils, if ever a man was. A hurried messenger came from his place to fetch me this morning. I guessed by his face that something serious had happened, and I went to Duke Street at once. I found the professor in his bedroom, half-dressed on his bed, cold, gasping, livid. He had breakfasted half an hour before. He murmured apologies for his treatment of me, but I cut him short and went straight to the case. I made a full investigation and came to the conclusion that it is a case of poisoning, the agent used being in all probability cocaine or some alloyed alkaloid. By the aid of nitrate of amyl capsules, I pulled him round, but was literally only just in time. When I entered the room, it was touch and go with the poor fellow. I believe if he had not had immediate assistance, he would have been dead in a few minutes. I saved his life. Now, Druce, we have to face a fact. There has been a deliberate attempt at murder on the part of someone. I have baffled the murderer in the moment of victory. Who would attempt his life? I cried. Need you ask? He answered gravely. Our eyes met. We were both silent. When I was with him this morning, he was too bad for me to get any particulars whatever from him, so I know nothing of the motive or details. But I have discovered by means of a careful analysis that there has been introduced into the milk with which he was supplied 
some poisonous alkaloid of the erythroxylin group. Feeling pretty certain that the poison was conveyed through the food, I took away a portion of his breakfast. In particular, I took some of the milk, which stood in a jug on his breakfast table. And here I have the result. I am going back there at once, and you had better come along. Vandeleur had poured out his words in such a torrent of excitement that he had not noticed how unusual it was for me to visit him at this early hour in the afternoon. Now, however, it seemed to strike him, and he said abruptly, "'You look strange yourself. Surely you haven't come here on purpose. You can't possibly have heard of this thing yet?' "'No,' I answered. "'I have heard nothing. I have come on my own account, and on a pretty big matter, too. And what is more, it relates to our young professor, unless I am much mistaken. I will tell you what I have to tell in the cab, Vandeleur. It will save time.' A hansom was summoned, and we were soon on our way to Duke Street. As we drove, I told Vandeleur in a few words what had occurred between Pollock and myself. He listened with the intentness which always characterized him. He made not a single remark. As we were entering the house, however, he turned to me and said with brevity, "'It is clear that she has tapped him. We must get from him what she knows. This may be a matter of millions.' On arriving at Piozzi's flat in Duke Street, we were at once shown into his bedroom by his manservant. Stretched upon the outside of the bed was the young professor, wrapped in a loose dressing-gown. His face was ghastly pale, and there was a blue tinge observable round his mouth and under his eyes. He raised himself languidly as we entered. "'Better, I see. Capital,' said Vangeler in a cheery tone. A very slight colour came into the young man's face. He glanced at me almost in bewilderment. "'You know my friend Druce,' said Vangeler. He is with me in this case, and has just brought me important information. Lie down again, Professor. As he spoke, he sat on the edge of the bed, and laid his hand on the young man's arm. I am sorry to have to tell you, Mr. Piozzi, that this is a very serious case. A rapid qualitative analysis of what you took for breakfast has shown me that the milk which was supplied for your use has been poisoned. What the poison is, I cannot say. It is very like cocaine in its reactions. The sick man shuddered and an expression of horror and amazement crossed his face. "'Who would want to take my life?' he said. "'Poisoned milk? I confess I do not understand. The thing must have been accidental,' he continued feverishly, fixing his puzzled eyes on Vandeleur. Vandeleur shook his head. "'There was no accident in this matter,' he said with emphasis. "'It was design. Deadly, too. You would not have been alive now if I had not come to you in the nick of time. It is our duty, Professor.' to go carefully into every circumstance, in order to ensure you against a further attempt on your life. "'But I do no one harm,' he answered irritably. "'Who would wish to take my life from me? It is impossible. You are laboring under a wrong impression.' "'We will let the motive rest for the present,' replied Vandeleur. "'That the attempt was made is certain. Our present object is to discover how the poison got into the milk. That is the question that must be answered, and before Druce and I leave this room.' Who supplies you with milk, Professor Piozzi? Piozzi replied by a languid motion towards the bell. My man will tell you, he said. I know nothing about the matter. The servant was summoned, and his information was brief and to the point. The professor's milk was served by the same milkman who supplied all the other members of the mansion. It is brought early in the morning, sir, said the man, and left outside the door of each flat. The housekeeper opens the house door for the purpose. I take it in myself the first thing on rising. "'And the can remains outside your door, with the house door open, until you take it in?' said Vandeleur. "'Yes, sir, of course.' "'Thank you,' said Vandeleur. "'That will do.' The man left the room. "'You see, Professor,' 
remarked my friend, after the door had closed upon the servant, how simple the matter is. Anyone could drop poison into the milk. That is, of course, what somebody did. These modern arrangements don't take crime into account when the criminal means business. The professor lay still, evidently thinking deeply. I noticed then, for the first time, that a look of age had crept over his face. It improved him, giving stability and power to features too juvenile for the mass of knowledge which that keen brain contained. His eyes were full of trouble. It was evident that his meditations were the reverse of satisfactory. "'I am the last man to pretend not to see when a self-evident fact stares me in the face,' he said at last. "'There has been an attempt made to poison me. But by whom? Can you tell me that, Mr. Vandeleur?' "'I could give a very shrewd guess,' replied Vandeleur. "'But were I to name my suspicions, you would be offended.' "'Forgive me for my exhibition of rage the other night,' he answered quite humbly. "'Speak your mind. I shall respect you, whatever you say.' "'In my mind's eye,' said Vandeleur slowly, "'I see a woman who has before attempted the life of those whom she was pleased to call her friends.' The professor started to his feet. Notwithstanding his vehement assertion, that he would not give way to his emotions, he was trembling all over. "'You cannot mean, Madame Sarah. You will change your mind. I have something to confide. Between now and last Wednesday I have been affianced to Donna Marta. Yes, we are to marry, and soon. Madame is beside herself with bliss, and Donna Marta herself—ah, I have no words to speak what my feelings are with regard to her. Madame, of all people, would be the last to murder me,' he said wildly, "'for she loves Donna Marta.' "'I am deeply sorry, Professor. Notwithstanding your words, and the very important statement you have just made with regard to the young lady who lives with Madame Sarah, to have to adhere to my opinion that there is a very deep-laid plot on foot, and that it menaces your life. I still believe that Madame, notwithstanding your word, is head and centre of that plot. Take my statement for what it is worth. It is, I can assure you, the only thing that I can say. And now I must ask you a few questions.' and you must have patience with me, great patience, while you reply to them. I beg of you to tell me the truth, absolutely and frankly. I will, answered the young man. You move me strangely. I cannot help believing in you, although I hate myself for allowing even one suspicious thought to fall on her. Vandeleur rose. Tell me, Mr. Piozzi, he said quietly, have you ever communicated to Madame Sarah the nature of your chemical discoveries? Never. Has she ever been here? Oh, yes, many times. Last week she and Donna Marta were both here. I had a little reception for them. We enjoyed ourselves. She was delightful. You have several rooms in this flat, have you not, Professor? Three reception rooms, he answered rather wearily. And you and Donna Marta were perhaps alone in one of these rooms, while Madame Sarah amused herself in another? Is that so? It is, he answered, reddening. Madame and Donna Marta remained after my other guests had gone. Madame went into my study. She said she would sit by the fire and rest. Do you leave your notes locked up or lying about? Always locked up. It is true the notes for my coming lecture were on that occasion on my desk. Ah, interrupted Vandeleur. No ordinary person could make anything of them, he continued. And even, he added, if Madame could have read them, it surely would not greatly matter that she should know my grand secret before the rest of the world. Piozzi, said Vandeleur very gravely, I must make another request of you. Whether Madame knows your secret or not, I must know it, and at once. Don't hesitate, Professor. Your life hangs in the balance. 
You must tell me that with which you mean to electrify the royal institution to-morrow week, now, now, at once. The professor looked astonished, but Vandeleur was firm. I must know it, he said. I hold myself responsible for your life. Druce, he added, turning to me, perhaps you can get the professor to see the necessity of what I ask. Will you tell him that story which you related to me in the cab? I did so without a moment's delay. My words were as brief as I could make them. I told him about my interview with Pollock, his excitement, his revelation of the fact that the patentee whose patent was to be secured in all countries all over the world was no less a person than Madame Sarah herself. In short, to my infinite delight, I managed to convey my suspicions to his mind. His whole attitude altered. He became excited, almost beside himself. His nervousness gave place to unexpected strength. He started to his feet and began to pace the room. "'Heavens!' he exclaimed more than once. "'If indeed I have been befooled, made a dupe of. But no, I cannot be. Still, if it is, I will revenge myself on Madame to the last drop of my blood.' "'For the present you must only confide in me,' said Vandeleur, laying a restraining hand on the young man's arm. "'And now for your secret. It is safe with Druce and myself. We must know it.' Piozzi calmed down as suddenly as he had given way to rage. He seated himself on a sofa and began in a quiet voice. "'What I have to say is simply this.' Then, in terse language, he poured out for Vandeleur's benefit an account of some process, interlarded with formulae, equations, and symbols, absolutely beyond my comprehension. Vandeleur sat and listened intently. Now and then he put a question, which was immediately answered. At last Piozzi came to the end of his narrative. "'That is it,' he said, "'the whole thing in a nutshell.' "'Upon my word,' said Vandeleur, "'it is very ingenious and plausible, and may turn out of immense benefit to the world. But at the present juncture I cannot see money in it, and money is what Madame wants and means to have. To be frank with you, Professor, I see no earthly reason in her wanting to patent what you have just told me. But is there nothing else? Are you certain?' "'Absolutely nothing,' was his reply. "'Well,' said Vandeleur, "'I am puzzled, I own it. I must think matters over.' he was interrupted by a loud exclamation from the young man. "'You are wrong, after all, Mr. Vandeleur,' he cried. "'Madame means to patent something else. Why should she not have a great idea in her head, quite apart from me and mine? Ah, this relieves me. It makes me happy. True, someone has tried to murder me, but it is not, Madame. It is not the lady whom Donna Marta loves.' His eyes blazed with delight. He laughed in feverish excitement. After soothing him as best we could— and trying to get a half-promise that he would not see either Madame or the young lady until we met again, we left him. As we were walking from the house, Vandeleur turned to me and said, "'I have been invited to a reception to-night at the house of our mutual friends, the Lauderdales. I understand that both Madame and the young lady are to be present. Would you like to come with me? I am allowed to bring a friend.' I eagerly assented. We arranged when and where to meet, and were about to part, when he suddenly exclaimed, this is a difficult problem. I shall have no rest until I have solved it. Piozzi's discovery is ingenious and clever, but at present it is unworkable. I do not see daylight, but no loophole is to be despised that may give me what I want. Between now and our meeting this evening, I will try to have an interview with Pollock. Give me his address. I did so, and we parted. End of Part 2 of Chapter 4